Welcome to the Finding Sustainability podcast. This is Stefan Pardolo. In today's podcast, I'm talking with Clara Winkler. Clara is a postdoctoral researcher at McGill University in Canada, where she is also the deputy science director of the ResNet project. The project aims to transform Canada's capacity to monitor, model, and manage its working landscapes and all the ecosystem services they provide for long-term shared health, prosperity, and resilience for all Canadians. Clara is from Germany, where she earned her PhD from the University of Oldenburg. Her thesis was titled, Once More with Feelings, Harnessing Human-Nature Relationships for the Governance of Social Ecological Systems. She also received a Master's of Science degree from Lund University in Sweden with a thesis titled, More Than Wine, Cultural Ecosystem Services in Vineyard Landscapes. In the podcast, we discuss the challenges and opportunities for further digitizing academia. We also talk about reflexivity in research practice, including our own CO2 emissions in the process of doing research. We also discuss the challenges for being far away from our research objects and some of the trade-offs involved in choosing our study locations. Clara also explains the Skype a Scientist initiative. Enjoy. Clara, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I had a lot of reflections this week about I think all of us because we're we're all stuck inside, or a lot of us are working home, at least in the academic community. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit later in the podcast. Let's first start with a little bit of your academic background and the project you're working on now. Sure. Um, so I started off in Germany, where I was born and raised, and did my undergrad, my bachelor environmental sciences and then I moved to Sweden where the two of us actually met during our master's degree in sustainability sciences at Lund University and then um, in my last year in my master's I was lucky enough to start uh, being involved in a EU project on ecosystem services it was one of these big EU projects and I could write my thesis in it and I moved then out of that one, I moved into another EU project on ecosystem services and went back to Germany to the UFC, which is a big research center in Leipzig, Germany, and um, did more on ecosystem services and governance and individuals as well. So I've started jumping always from the individual level, what is an individual perceiving as important in a landscape to uh, what are our policies on an EU level, on a national German level, or individual countries in Germany. Um, and then I had always my background with my master's in sustainability sciences. And after some time, I moved into a PhD at uh, Oldenburg University, which is a smaller university in the north uh, west of Germany. And I worked on um, human nature relationships and how they could be integrated into policy making but i never lost interest in sustainability and sustainability sciences and also transformation so one part was like thinking about this new field of sustainability sciences and a field that i feel very connected to how does it inform the social ecological research that i was doing and i see their similarities and a lot of people are in both of these fields and how do you combine that that was like it's always interesting to me and also just because I learned so much during my studies about sustainability it influenced the way I wanted to do my research I was lucky enough to be back in Germany which is basically the center or like geographical center of Europe right so I could take trains and could reduce my flying for my research and 
I also decided at that point that I wanted research that concentrated or focused on systems that are surrounding me rather than having to travel to my case studies. Um, so I finished my PhD a couple of years ago in 2018, so one and a half years ago. And then I moved uh, to Canada to McGill University and started a postdoc on 100% in sustainability sciences looking at McGill University um, as an organization, and I'm paid by the leadership of the university, but integrated in a research lab, the Bennett Lab, uh, and we look at so-called bright spots, so projects that already have like a sustainability um, view to the world and could change and are like small seeds. And the university leadership is interested how to help to increase the efforts and the effects of these projects. And so we look at transformation and how are these projects working. Um, yeah, and just l recently I moved now from this postdoc project, I'm moving into um, another project that's hosted at McGill um, at the Bennett Lab. And it's called ResNet. It's a new project funded for five years, and it's very similar to big research projects that people are familiar in Europe with that bring together a bunch of researchers, and now it's back for me into more social ecological research and looking at how Canadian landscapes can be differently managed uh, for a sustainable future. Who's all involved in that project? So it's about 20 universities all over Canada. Uh, we have also partners, some in Europe and uh, in the U.S. And we have about um, 20 partners, which are also governments, like provincial governments, but also the national federal level in Canada. But then also smaller NGOs. Um, we have representation of uh, First Nations because we work in six different landscapes from coast to coast and then the Canadian north. So it's a big aspect for us to integrate like the indigenous views and them, their thoughts and their knowledge um, and not only do uh, Western science and uh, but to get a, a holistic view and integrate different knowledge types. As, yeah, so this is a big, big project. We just started and we are at the moment in the hiring process. And once we are to full speed in the summer, it will be about 100 researchers and about 30 to 40 pr practitioners working um, on different topics. Wow. Yeah, I want to come back to one thing which you said about how moving to the geographical location of Europe helped you did the research that you wanted to do. And we, one of the themes that Michael and I talk about and something that I also think about quite a lot is this idea of reflexivity. So reflecting on your own position as a scientist and the impact that you have. I'm, in, I'm interested in, in maybe two parts of that, you know, so the reflection on the actual impact that you are creating as a scientist. So what are the emissions, for example, what are the impact on different people that you have as a social scientist when you engage with them, when you interview them, for example, and how perhaps reflexivity can change some of those practices within academia. And then I guess the other one, which I've thought about is how does that actually change the process of, of knowledge production, having these more reflexive modes of thinking. And I think that doesn't always have to be related to, or the, the, the actual impact on the environment, but more the, the thinking and, and how we think about things like interdisciplinarity and our willingness to cooperate and our willingness to engage with, with outside actors outside of academia. I'm really interested in your reflections on that and whether you think you 
one, we're able to take a lot of steps, which reduce your impact. And, and maybe you could like, give us an example of some of those things that you did. Um, and then how you think that changed how you actually produce the work that you, you did in your thesis and perhaps in the project now? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I think it's it's a part of my research is always to think about what's my position in it. And I think that's a lot more present for a lot of social scientists because we we often get accused for being biased or where's the rigor. So I always want to be sure where what's my position in 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 the system I'm researching and um who am I and what's my contribution and I I remember very early in my masters I had once a discussion with somebody so we were all international students in um I had a discussion with somebody and we discussed can we go back to our home countries and do research and what what's the effect of it what what's 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 the yeah so is it us that can we can we research a system that we are involved in that we understand or is it better to go somewhere where you're completely new to and you ask all the fundamental questions mm. and um so in my my phd research i researched in a in an area in germany which has a very strong local identity they have even an own language which is not very common in germany we have dialects but our own language it's i think it's the only area or one of the few areas that has an own language so um and i i thought it was very helpful in that moment to to be there and understand the broader german setting of how is the system working? Which policies, which laws are effective? But then being new to the local context and being able to ask questions and not belonging to any side or having any color, color in the way of, oh, she's more belonging to the conservation group or she's more for agriculture or she represents tourism. It was rather, I was interested in all of them and was trying to understand them so i thought i was really helpful and i think i like this approach that i'm new to a context i was new to mcgill when i started my postdoc so i could start asking questions and i would often said oh i just don't know i'm new here uh, explain it so i could ask and get the real understanding of people how they see the world but I was not new to the concept of a university, so I had an idea of what a university does, like teaching and research and operations and the different power dynamics in different faculties and among different people. So I think that, that that's uh, an important part to be just reflective on what's my position in the research I'm doing. Um, I'm interested to hear, and as you are setting up now this this very large research project, how much of the discussions in advance are about discussing those types of issues? And I assume it's a fairly large interdisciplinary project and there might be some, you know, I'm interested in your reflections if there are disagreements early on about how the project should continue, about some of the difficulties and challenges that might come along the way. And then can you have this kind of precautionary or, yeah, precautionary reflexivity, I guess one way of saying it. So to avoid conflicts down the road. So it is a bit interesting for me as a rather new person in Canada, how funding is working here. It's very either you're in the social sciences or you're in the natural sciences. 
And so this project is funded through NSERG, which is basically the funding body for natural natural sciences. Um, we are allowed to do up to 30% um, of social sciences or other research, it's called. So uh, there's, that's a challenge, but I, I have big admiration of the people who wrote the proposal and came up with it, um, how they designed everything. So ResNet is def- has, we have these six case studies and we have three research themes, we call it. And around the six case studies and three themes, there's always a group of researchers. And our theme one, that's um, a group of social scientists, um, especially governance researchers and uh, social ecological researchers who are very familiar with ideas of social network analysis and so on. And we were planning this spring canadian spring which now has to be postponed for the fall and to do workshops led by theme one in every um, of the six in every of the six case studies to um, do a stakeholder analysis and to start understanding these cases by understanding who are the actors in the landscapes what are what do they value what do they need how do they work and interact with the landscape so um, that's a very uncommon um, approach I find in Canada so far that we start like that we give so much importance in the beginning to understanding and assessing the situation rather than going out into the field and measuring albedo and carbon and I don't know um, like other ecological measurements. So I think uh, that that's a big learning and bringing people together and we will have a lot of um, what they call the HQP, highly qualified personnel, which are master students and PhD students. And they will grow up in this project for five years now that puts so much emphasis on the social side, social sciences side. So I think we are good in a good on a good track here. Do you guys have a lot of discussions about what interdisciplinarity is in the project? what perhaps transdisciplinarity is in the project. You said you have a lot of engagement or a lot of the first part of the project is talking with local actors that you, I guess, are going to be part of the study. Are those discussions happening? Yeah, there's, we're starting to having having this these debates. And just earlier this week, we had a call with different people uh, in these themes. And there was an interesting moment where people started to discuss what is data. So the one theme w- which I was talking about, about the workshops, talked about how they will collect data and then somebody else more from like a ecological quantitative side was like but what's your data and so i think to have these debates and discussions to say oh the the things that people will tell us that's our data to 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 have these discussions over and over again will help us and also what we discussed in that call and i i'm will lead that and start doing that next week is we will start doing a we call it at the moment a glossary, which is not a right, the right word, but we will bring in important terms that we will give definitions um, as a living online document and people then, there's a person responsible for every term and then people can discuss and, and talk about it because that's a lot what we do and why, why I'm in many calls at the moment is to do all these conversations and start negotiating or talking about and creating understanding 
Um, and I think my, my research background and also my education background really, um, helps to facilitate these debates because I have an understanding of both sides somehow. And I've been in these projects where you have to bring people together. Um, but so I, I think what we try at the moment is to not fatigue people with too many concepts but rather talk about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And after, or like at a later stage, giving, putting labels to it rather than saying, Oh, we are now an interdisciplinary research group that does transdisciplinary research or where a lot of people are like, Whoa, 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 no, no, no. I'm a landscape ecologist. I'm not nothing else. Um, I think it's, it's this way. We are, we also, the other way around, we work on ecosystem services, but talking with our actors and partners in practice we hardly use the term ecosystem services but we talk we, we talk around it so i think we work less with labels at the moment yeah that's an interesting reflection because i've seen also it seems like a lot of the labels can act as boundary objects so terms like ecosystem services or terms like uh, interdisciplinarity can unite people but do you get the impression that in some cases it's almost too too fast in terms of needing to define that and then that some people would be rather hesitant to associate their identity with those particular terms and rather feel more comfortable yeah like you said as a landscape ecologist yeah that's like at least my perception at the moment the, the ones that say oh we do here an interdisciplinary project they're completely fine using that but then there's like other people who do great research and even use concepts or like art jumping between different disciplines. Yeah, I wanted to I want to jump to another topic which was this flying less movement which is going on in Twitter over for for quite a while now actually uh, since I think before you were in Canada and as you said before part of the part of your thoughts on research is being able to reduce the impact the environmental impact of of academia as such and maybe you could just give a little summary summary of what the flying less kind of movement is and then i know you have some reflections about going towards a more digital working space in academia and maybe you could give an example of the project sure um so flying less is a is first a hashtag for me that academics all over the world use especially on twitter and use it to show that you don't always have to fly and it started basically with conferences because a lot of people fly to conferences all over the world. Um, and it's just a default that when, when you research, you go to a conference and the next thing is you call the travel agency of your university and they will look for a flight. And so for me, it started when I was in Europe. And uh, like I said, I was located in Germany, so it's central and there's a good train system or decent train system bringing you everywhere in Europe. And the travel agency of the university couldn't buy me any train tickets. Um, so I started to get really into it and also for my private life got, got into trains. But um, there's this whole movement thinking about how much academics are flying and when different universities like McGill University, they do like greenhouse gas emission calculations every year. And about 14% of McGill's um, emissions are on traveling. 
and that's only the travels that are paid through McGill's own system. So it doesn't include like the students flying in. It doesn't include if researchers are invited to speeches and somebody, some other body is paying these bills. Mm-hmm. So there's a ha- like a lot of carbon emitted to for researchers, and um, it seems to be a default in the system. And that is something I want to challenge. Do we really have to fly every time? Do we really have to go to every meeting, every conference? Do we have to meet in person every time we meet? Um, because I assume a lot of us have been at conferences or even meet project meetings that were not very productive or not very meaningful in the end where we were like, yeah, it was nice to travel to one place or the other, but content-wise, we could have done that in a one-hour Skype call or two hours or I don't know. So, um, yeah, as an example, like this project we were talking about, the ResNet project, where we have researchers all over Canada from coast to coast, we decided um, instead of a, a kickoff, a traditional in-person kickoff, to do uh, an online kickoff in November and we had over 50 people joining that call. It was a whole day, seven hours and um, we produced contact content and we talked and we got to know each other and we showed that we could do it and we set the tone of the project that we would do a lot of things online. So it seems we were like a little bit ahead of the curve what we see now with everyone going online. Mm. Um, and it worked very well. It worked very well. Like I said, we produced content and people were really happy. It was about expectations management for sure. But in the end, we calculated we saved over 32,000 air miles. And that's a lot of um, emissions that we saved and a lot of money as well in not ev- flying everybody into Montreal for a day and hotels and so on. Yeah, the money issue is really interesting because so much of budgets are it's just an assumption that so much percentage of a research budget is going to go to, to traveling. It's actually quite a lot. And if you think of you know, going for field work in a foreign country or um, going to a few conferences per year, it's really a lot that could be allocated to, to other things. Yeah, I was just talking earlier this week uh, with a friend who was working in a German research think tank and they had planned to do workshops in India and some uh, Southern African countries. And she was talking about how now they have to cancel these workshops so they put them online but like this a lot of the budget suddenly gets freed up and they can do other things and give it to their local partners and they can run four or five months with that money just employing people so it's it's interesting i had never really thought about the budgeting that much before but I think it's it's really interesting. Amidst the tragedy, the human tragedy that is now the coronavirus, it's a really interesting social experiment, I think, to see, particularly within certain sectors. And I mean, we can talk just about academia, perhaps, of what this move towards online and digitalized, for example, teaching. So I, I know most of, I'm not sure what the situation in Canada is, but I've heard that in the United States, most of the universities are now going completely online. And yeah. I know a lot of uh, European countries as well are doing that. And then Twitter is just a mess. I mean, it's it, there's really, on one hand, really hopeful stories of people having good experiences and sharing teaching materials and, and sharing what they've learned and having good student interactions. And then on the other hand, a lot of 
chaos because people have kids and they they're trying to argue that they should get their tenure clocks stopped because it's not a yeah. fair assessment procedure and yeah a lot of students there's also some equity issues a lot of students might at that their home away from the university might not have internet access or they might not have the the, the resources or tools available or they could be uh, stressed and they're not able to do to even some have argued they shouldn't have to do graded work during this period uh, or be evaluated because everyone's personal situation is different at the moment. And I was wondering what your thoughts on that as as a social experiment for academia. I mean, can we can we learn from this? What do you what do you think are some takeaways? Yeah, I think you highlighted some of the points because it's not like when we did our um, one day kickoff workshop online, we prepared it very well. We set the tone, we informed everyone before we managed expectations. So everybody was in a setting where they wanted to be. Uh, I think it's a, with people who have kids, I admire every researcher, anyone at the moment who is home with kids and has to homeschool kids and while trying to do research and go join meetings and all that. So I think that's, we ask here for a lot at the moment and at in the same time. But um, on the other hand, I hope that certain things we learn and we then can take on into the future where people are like, yeah, if I'm sitting in my office at university or even at home and on my desk or on my kitchen table alone, it could, it could be feasible to have certain meetings online rather than uh, traveling um, everywhere to, to learn how we behave, to learn what's working and not. And also for our kickoff, as like with every conference call you have, you, you learn every time something as a participant, but also as a host, what works well, what doesn't work well. And I, I think for the teaching, especially, it's not that like we have, like humanity hasn't done it before. There has been like distance learning programs in remote areas and there have been distance universities all over the place um but i think as a normal academic we hardly get any training in teaching and even less training in um methods for distance learning uh i mean i i i have looked into or i have taken some teaching courses over the last years because i'm interested in improving my teaching but I have never seen any course at my university here or before in Europe that would teach methods for distance learning. And I, I, this knowledge is existing, right? No, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, listen, there was the, the recent Freakonomics podcast episode on social distancing. They, they spent a good 10 minutes interviewing some economists about, about this issue. And that's some really interesting reflections for those who are interested. And I also heard on the Economist podcast today which is March 20th. They estimate 1 billion kids are home from school worldwide now from this virus. Yeah. And that doesn't, that's everyone. That's all at all grades. And I think, yeah, the learning environment for younger, for younger children is going to be different from that at the university. But one thing I thought of was, was interesting is that as we're all now being forced to go digital with our lectures and is the opportunity to record them in advance and to use the in-classroom time for different types of activities. So, for example, yeah. you could, you know, prepare in advance and, and record a polished lecture online of, of kind of the basic or uh, the basic information that you want to go over. And then the real value of engaging with students in the face-to-face -face time, if, if we're going to spend a lot of time and, and, and capital to bring people together in a room, we, we can use that to have more engaging 
activities and discussions. And I thought that might be interesting. I'd be interested to hear if, what people think about that and if they're seriously thinking about yeah, pre-recording their lectures. And, and one aspect is that is can we make those then lectures publicly available online? I mean, I know uh, universities have an intellectual property rights <laughs> probably argument to, to keep the lectures uh, for their students uh, to them. But making those lectures publicly available is really going to expand the the knowledge commons of of learning across different disciplines and across different universities and worldwide. And that that's certainly going to be a more equitable access to education if we can get those lectures online um, and accessible from a lot of different types of people. What do you think about that? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there we we saw things like this already coming up with these massive online courses, these MOOCs, and a lot of big Ivy League universities and other universities all around the world had online courses, right, which you could take. And it's revolutionizing this idea of who has access and how do you get access to knowledge as well, um, especially in a system where I'm at the moment in North America, where universities are so expensive, right? Something that never been so obvious to me before being in Europe, where I was in countries where education is free, universities are free. But now suddenly I can listen to a professor in, at Princeton um, and hear what she has to say and get this knowledge. I think this is once we get also then the internet and um, these possibilities to everyone, then it is like revolutionizing the system. So far, I, I don't know the numbers, but I think a lot of rural communities have problems having strong internet, right? Like the internet is not strong enough, so you can't have access to these things. Mm-hmm. And then it's still putting, like it. there is the possibility, but you just don't have the infrastructure around you to access it. Yeah. So I think that's something, um, it's a great cho- possibility, but it's something I see on Twitter and it's discussed here at McGill. It's like, so McGill is, has also been closed for a week now and students don't come back until the fall and there won't be uh, like a sit, the sitting exams. Everything goes online and McGill recommends all students to go home um because we also don't know what happens with the traveling at the moment but the same in the same time what happens with students who live in rural communities who don't have access to high-speed internet yeah exactly one thing i was thinking about as well was like how does it change the participation dynamics between the students and the teachers so for example if you have a if you're giving a zoom lecture and you have 50 people in your class and then how do you how do you format a sort of question and answer session and how do the different personalities of the students change and how they might be more willing to engage uh, in a digital format in terms of asking questions like some students might be more quiet in the class and they not they wouldn't raise their hand or ask a question in in a live class but when they're online they might be more yeah willing to to type in a question and to engage with that type of material and that might change the the kind of interpersonal dynamics based on the the personalities of the students and i wonder if that makes it more equitable or or not i mean there's there's got to be trade-offs both ways i think it's just interesting to think about the how the medium through which we convey knowledge to students changes the learning process and, and different equity issues i think it's uh, an interesting 
thought experiment and now a real world experiment. And in, in our project at the moment, we do these monthly meetings where we have one group, one theme, one landscape. I was talking about presenting their research and it's every month somebody different. And then uh, people just ask questions or discuss. It's, um, and it's very interesting to see how that works and that it works very well and that people also um, are happy to join. So yesterday we had our monthly meeting and we had like the most people ever joining this meeting because people had time apparently, but also were interested and we had people writing and people talking and um, I think it makes it more accessible in many ways. Also, if you think about pre-recordings, people could uh, watch it at any time of the day when they have their peak learning hours rather than saying everybody has to learn in the morning or in the afternoon or so on. Um, I think it gives you much more liberty and uh, freedom to decide how do I learn best. Definitely. I think definitely with attention spans these days, I mean, in the classroom model, in the live classroom model, you're expected to pay attention during the entire period of the lecture. But I think we, we all know that we zone out or we lose we lose focus. Uh, it maybe goes in waves through the lecture. And just the ability to, to watch that lecture again, if it's recorded, is, is it's got to be a huge advantage in terms of the learning potential. Yeah. And then we shouldn't forget, like, I have never studied a subject that has these massive lectures, you know, like chemistry 101 or I don't know. Uh, math or something every undergrad has to take in certain disciplines where they have 500 or 800 students in the lecture room there they have already hardly any connection or interaction with the lecturer right yeah. so having an online youtube video or video i mean that existed before so um i think then it's about the social interactions and there is there are tools that help to interact on a, in a digital space, right? Like breakout groups, or you can imagine working on shared documents at the same times and just having a call at, and talk with each other, hear the voice. Um, yeah, and just using, seeing the advantages. And once we are back to normal, then I think it should be always a combination of in-person and uh, online. It should. I don't think we should go completely one or the other way um, if we don't have to. Yeah, I was also thinking in terms of of social science research because a lot of the a lot of the ways that we collect data in the social sciences is doing interviews with people, and you know interviews can be done over the phone. And, and I had a trip which was recently canceled due to the the coronavirus. When I was going to fly to Indonesia and then just do some preliminary scoping for a project and talk with some partners and. I was, yeah, of course, bummed that I couldn't go, but it saves the emissions at least. And then I was realizing, well, I mean, I could really just try to connect with those people online. I don't necessarily know all of them in advance because part of the reason to go there was to to meet face to face and 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 meet new people. But you know, these networking tools can be done digitally now. And in Indonesia, being a very WhatsApp friendly country in terms of how it communicates. You know, slowly we're doing that. We're, we're, I'm, I'm still going and meeting people, and people are giving me the contacts of others who are there that we can talk with. And it, a lot of this can be done, and and even formal interviews uh, as collected data can be done over the phone. I think there's, of course, something that's lost in the face-to-face -face meeting, and especially in terms of reading facial expressions if you're doing a, an interview with someone, which is data which is not really captured, right? It's the data of, of yeah. seeing how someone expresses an opinion or the tone of their voice or the look on their face or the pauses between their sentence that is somehow 
a magnitude of the data which you can't weight quantitatively but you get that when you're looking at them when you have the interview and that's really important for interpreting what that data means and that's something that when you just read a transcript you don't see right but certainly you can yeah to some extent you can get some data uh, digitally in doing these these interviews especially in the social sciences yeah so as i said at the beginning i'm lucky and i'm i've decided that i always want to be very close to my research object like like geographically but i also wonder like in how far maybe this will bring different relationships between researchers in the northern hemisphere to their local research partners so is there a possibility that you could have people in indonesia for example who would you know who you're working so often and so intensely with that they can do in the end the interviews and you know help you then with with like the interpretation of all the non-written information you know that they can contribute like that yeah um, and, and things like this like it, i don't think it goes from now to suddenly doing it but i i wonder how how can we change sometimes also our research approaches in the way that we build capacity in our research partners at, in other places rather than us traveling everywhere? Yeah, I'm interested on in your reflection there that you want to be close to your research object. And that's something that I struggle with because I work at a tropical marine institute in Germany. Right. Of course, <laughs> it's extremely disconnected uh, geographically, at least spatially from the the places and and the people that we we do our research on and i'm i'm wondering and i'm thinking a lot more about it these days because that's also something i would like to move towards in the future um, being closer to my to my research and yeah is that something that's an ethical kind of mandate do you think that's becoming something which is more i don't know if ethical mandate is is the right term to use there but something which should be considered in research proposals and Especially, I mean, on one side, it's the the practical the side, the emissions, the environmental impact of flying, the yeah, the potential cultural and social aspects of of mixing different cultures, which can be both positive, um, but also a sensitive issue to to navigate. You have this issue of of knowledge grabbing, which there there is a literature on where you know it's primarily framed in the sense that you know a lot of the north american and and european researchers we go to countries and it's something that you know i'm also doing is we go there and we we harvest their knowledge and we collect their knowledge and we are the ones who largely benefit from the collection of that knowledge in terms of either our personal careers or for advancing the science systems of our own countries back home and the benefit even though we would like to give that back to those countries, it, it's I think it's still a skewed benefit in terms of that. So there there is a there is a grabbing, a knowledge grabbing framing, which which can be criticized there as well. And with all those things, it just makes me think if there there are some ethical choices which should be debated more in academia about about being closer to our research objects. Yeah, I mean, like I also know that I have decided for the easy way out to say, okay, I do my research only where I am, and I don't do any other research. That's the easy way route, right? Mm. Um, but I, I, I wonder sometimes, like, is there more place, for example, for capacity building to say a certain percentage of the budget has to be in capacity building of local partners? Mm-hmm. So to say, okay, I don't know, 10% goes into education and in infrastructure building of local partners so that in the future, 
they can either do their research on their own, researching their own systems, or we don't, like, we don't have to come there. And also a second part, do we think, how do we bring it, bring information back to the community? How do we share our findings? What kind of research are we doing? Are we just uh, pushing research or are we uh, pushing research in a way that it's useful? Can we translate our results in a way that's useful for local communities and say, here, the, the Western science world research results are these. Mm-hmm. This is what we bring back to you. Um, and be then in discussion about what did we find and how do they, like local communities or local decision makers, perceive it that they at least have the results. Because I, I have never seen studies, and I guess it's really hard to see it or to really get numbers, but how much, how often do people go back and research? And I know in your research center, you go always back and forth between kind of the same research area. So, you know, there is a continuous learning and giving back and communicating with these areas. Well, I know of K, like of PhD programs where every PhD student thinks about their own research project somewhere in the world. And after that PhD student, nobody will ever come back. And if it's not a priority to, I guess, the PhD student, this knowledge will, which is then behind a paywall in a scientific paper in English will never come back to the community they got the knowledge from. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's the same with our master's program at our institute. I mean, this is 20, 20 to 30 students every year, more or less going to different cases or different places around the world, which they're mandated to do to, in, order, in order to do their thesis and get a degree. And yeah, no, they're staying there for four to six months. They're interviewing people and they themselves as a researcher become part of the system. They have an impact on the system. They interview many people if they're doing social science or, and they, 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 you know, there's nothing really brought back necessarily from that unless it's integrated within a larger project. Yeah. And I think there's some methods that, um, so during my PhD, I used uh, also social network analysis and I built like with every interviewee, I built their own ego network. So their network, how they perceive the situation and just um, doing this and then um, sending them their map back and thanking them. I mean, that was one step that that was not all I did, but it's like already this, I got a lot of feedback from people saying, oh, this was really helpful. I've never thought about this issue in that way. So thinking about, oh, could we find also methods that are not only just generation, generating data and knowledge for us, but also helping people to reflect um, is maybe a first step to think about which methods do we select. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes I wonder if, even if I were to take some of my results back to the communities we work in abroad, do they really view that as valid knowledge coming from from me or from from a foreigner? Are they even interested in hearing that? You know, do they view it as, as yeah. valid from their perspective? Should be known. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. It's, I think, um, I mean, ideally, in this idea of transdisciplinary sustainability science research. We would think we define the research question with the, with the local community, with the stakeholders, the actors, the, the system we want to be in. But that's hardly ever the case that we really have funding to go 
for and ask first the questions and then research whatever they want to know. So sometimes I wonder, is it really interesting what we are researching or uh, for them? Is it useful? Yeah, definitely. You made an interesting note here in the podcast notes. What is uh, what is Skype a scientist? I also saw this going around on Twitter. Do you have an idea of what, what that is? Yeah, it's like this. Um, I don't know what formal entity they are. It's like a group online. Uh, you find it on skypeascientist.com. And as a scientist, you can sign up. And it used to be for schools that you, so you, you would, as a scientist, would sign up, fill out the form and say, okay, I have knowledge. I can talk about these and that kind of language. I, I So far, I know it's mainly in English. I have gotten to know it here in Canada. So it's in English or French. Um, so you give all your information and then um, especially like elementary teachers, um, but also high school um, can go in, sign up and then look through the database and see, oh, I'm like teaching at the moment a course on rivers. Let's see if there's a, ri a river scientist, basically. So and then you are like they can contact the scientist and they match up. And now they have this idea about. Uh, that also families can Skype in scientists because kids are at home and uh, parents suddenly have to teach uh, everything, right? So maybe it's fun to get a scientist in. And um, yeah, that, that's that's a part of uh, Skype a scientist. But I'm signed up, but I haven't gotten anyone uh, doing asking me for doing anything. So I can't say I have done it yet. Yeah, well, we could try to get a link and put it in the show notes for this episode. Folks who are interested can can check it out. Yeah. Do you know, also one of the other things you made here was some this idea where universities can kind of tax the projects uh, to go into sort of some sort of sustainability fund, either at the university or to offset emissions. Have you heard of any universities who are actively doing that for example who allow or use some of the project budget or overhead money to offset emissions or to invest in things locally or within the projects to take uh, the knowledge back yeah so that's uh, about going back to um, flying less is this idea of offsetting emissions in case you have to travel first you should think do i really have to travel and if so okay then can i offset um and most funding agencies don't allow it. I know that Miguel has put in um, a request to the big funding agencies in Canada that we can use funding for carbon offsets. So there's like pressures from the universities coming to funding agencies. Um, I know only, and I have only read about it, so I can't say how good the system is, um, about a university in Switzerland, the University of Neuchâtel, uh, it's in the French-speaking part of Switzerland. Um, they have implemented about a year ago a system where they make, when you file your expenses for travel, that they pay about 25 Swiss francs per emitted ton of carbon um, into a university internal fund that then um, goes to support sustainability projects at the university and the local community. And this money comes um, through the labs and university internal money um, in case that if they can't use the funding from the funding agencies. But that's the only system I know. But I know there's pressure at least for offsetting because so far most of the time it's the researcher's private expense in the end to offset their travel and if you think it's work travel um then it shouldn't be your own private money 
Yeah, and it doesn't seem like the right incentives because I guess most budgets are already pretty tight. Yeah, so it is something about funding agencies and contacting funding funding agencies, and it, I think it's all these things about traveling less and or flying less. It's an interesting question: Is it the individual has to make the change, or is it the system who ha, which has to make the change? So is it the funding agency that should change the policy, or is it the researcher who has to then take the additional costs and? I think it's us researchers speaking up and pre- like putting a bit of pressure or at least asking funding agencies again and again, can I take the train even if it's more expensive than maybe flying, which is often the case if you think about traveling through Europe, which is absurd in itself, but anyway, or asking funding agencies, oh, but why can I, can't I offset my flight? Can, how, how can I help or how is this process working that we can change it? So I think the, the, these are examples, um, slow, slowly moving systems, but um, I hope for that it, it's moving faster and faster in the future. Yeah, exactly. I think it just shows a bit the some of the institutional path dependencies which are there in the system, like for like some regulations that you always have to have the cheapest way of getting to the destination, even though the train may be a little bit long, maybe a little bit more expensive, and also the that it might take a little bit longer. You might need to stay one extra day during the travel. And that might require one extra night of a hotel, uh, for example. And yeah, and, and that brings us back to the online life, right? Like, and tenure packages and tenure clocks, where people are like, we have to like pause our tenure packages at the moment because the system is set up that we are traveling and we're going to conferences. And um, I've been last year lucky enough that a interesting sustainability conference was in Ottawa, which is two, just two hours out of Montreal. And I met somebody from uh, somebody from Montreal, and I said, "Oh, I didn't expect you here." And this person said to me, "Well, it's not 100% my my um, my field, but you know, I have for my tenure package, I need that many international conferences, and for once, it was a conference I could go for a day and like get the point for my tenure package." And I was like, "This is just wrong. Mm. Who built t- tenure packages that make people travel?" Um, even though they don't want to travel or they don't feel like it's the best way to invest their time. So I think it's like being a more, a little bit more flexible about what, what does it mean to be a good academic, a good faculty member? Uh, for what do you get appraisals? Um, yeah. And I think it's us, we have to raise these aspects. It's not the system. The system won't change itself. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, in this time when we're transitioning and and forced a bit to transition towards digitalization, I mean, there's also just so many people who are having innovative ideas for for how we can make this work and make it work in a practical way. And I, I mean, you have to think a little bit about how those innovations can be rewarded, right? Because, I mean, now we're forced to do it. But, you know, we also want to have continued innovations to improve the teaching system, to improve uh, and reduce our, our emissions as academics. And, and sometimes having innovations takes risks to try out yeah. new things, uh, to try out new modes of teaching, to try out new modes of research, to try out um, to to advocate within your faculty or to advocate within your department or university for, for changing the, the structural issues, those take risks, um, but we need people to do them and we need people to advocate for them. And I'm just wondering how those types of uh, aspects within the, cons- probably within the service realm, I guess, of a tenure package would, would be evaluated. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think it 
really depends, but I'm very hopeful in the way that the, the departments and the faculties I want to be part of, I want to be in a faculty or in a department that allows these things. So if a faculty or department doesn't value, doesn't value these things, then I'm not interested in joining it. And I know that I'm in a very, um, lucky situation in the way that I can say these things. And I'm like, I, I just have decided this for me then. If that means I won't get a faculty position very soon, then this is this situation. But I don't want to be in a place where I can't follow thoughts that are really important for me or the the idea, how do I do research? And the way I see my research, I don't want to just produce papers that are papers for papers. I want to do research that has an impact and I want to have a life that is good and I want to look into the faces of kids and be like, I try to reduce my impact on the world and I don't want to be forced to anything I don't want to do. Mm. But I think that that's that's what we talked about in the beginning. It's like being reflexive about what's important to you and your research and, and or like what's important to you, what do you value and how does it influence your research? Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's not that academia is not only a marketplace of ideas, but a marketplace becoming more of a marketplace of values too. And especially if we think about sustainability science and, and particularly this push for interdisciplinarity work and sustainability oriented, normatively oriented sustainability research. Universities want to be competitive in getting the best researchers. Might be time for reconsidering a lot of those issues. And I think and I think they are like I'm I was last year, last May at a workshop in the UK and it was about like how appraisals at university and how it works. And there were a lot of more senior people, people who were like running institutes in Europe or uh, in the U.S. or in Canada. And I, I afterwards, I, in the end, when we did a reflection round, I said I'm quite ha- hopeful as an early career researcher because all these people are in the commissions and the committees that find new faculty members. And I think it's much easier for us now to find these people rather than them who like 15 years ago had already these thoughts and were the first ones to say, but it's important to talk with the local community or bring it back. Or it's not all about high impact papers, but also and uh, science communication, for example. So I think we're in a good spot. So the system is slowly but steadily changing. Mm. Well, do you have any final thoughts or comments you want to make before we wrap up? No, I'm good. How about then uh, tell people where they can find you on Twitter at least, and then we'll also link to it in the in the show notes. Sure. Um, you find me on Twitter. My hashtag is KJ underscore Winkler, and you can follow me there, or you can find me um, on the website of McGill. Thank you, Clara. That was fun. Thanks. Thanks again to all of you for listening and supporting this podcast. The show notes, which include more information about our guests and links to the material mentioned in the episodes, can be found on most podcast players or on our website. You can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play, and it can also be streamed from our website. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, where we would be happy to connect and continue these discussions. Thanks again.